mean, to put it mildly, we don't have a tradition of design review. We have a tradition of really laissez-faire attitude toward the production of architecture. And there are many architects who would argue quite passionately that only that laissez-faire attitude, which allows a lot of, a lot of ugliness, what allows a lot of um, ambition and, and really unusual unorthodox architecture. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, Conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here with Christopher Hawthorne, Chief Design Officer for the City of Los Angeles. Christopher joins us today to discuss his interest in civic memory and the urban imaginary. Christopher, welcome. Thanks so much, Charles. Great to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Tell us, what's a Chief Design Officer do on a Tuesday morning? You know, I was thinking as I was heading over here, it has been a particularly interesting week, a lot of a confluence of a lot of interesting projects that are ramping up or coming to fruition one way or another. So we launched a couple of months ago a design competition for a new standard streetlight in the city. So I've been working on that. I have brought together a group of historians, architects, and others in what we're calling a civic memory uh, working group to sort of think about how our public design work can be more engaged in the the history of the city, layers of history, particularly I think where that history is fraught. I've been working on some planning for a piece of land that the city bought along the LA River, the old Taylor Yard, 42 acres that is connected to another 60 or so acres of state park land. And Yesterday also had a couple of meetings related to our efforts around shade. We're trying to add very quickly some uh, shade structures or plant some trees at a number of bus stops uh, around the city and places where there's really intense heat. Uh, so that's just a little snapshot. It's a, it's a lot of uh, really fascinating work, a lot of it in, connected to the public right-of-way or public space in one way or another, not exclusively, but it's a, it's been a really fascinating 18 months or so in this job, thinking about where I can have the most impact. So it's been a busy 10 years, still in your honeymoon, I take it. More or less, more or less. <laughs> I don't know what kind of honeymoon one gets in a, in a city job anyway. So, but yeah, it does still feel new to a certain extent, not just for me, because I made a pretty dramatic shift, but also because the position itself is new. First time that these issues, architecture, planning, urban design, have been brought into the mayor's office in this way. So it's an experiment, I think, for the for the city as well as for me. So as the inaugural holder of this uh, new role with the authority of Mayor Gassetti's office, help our audience understand, like, I mean, given the challenges that we face today, if we look at questions of affordability and homelessness, urgent threat around climate, why would design be a rubric uh, that we could be committed to? Primarily, I think because um, the mayor feels and I feel that we can look to design to accelerate and really realize in three-dimensional space the the really ambitious goals that the city has around climate, around uh, housing affordability, around equity, and that we will not make the kind of headway that we hope to make on those really challenging issues unless we think about how that will be executed and build space. And of course, that won't happen or won't happen successfully without a design strategy. So, you know, the climate goals that we have, the housing goals that we have, the mobility goals that we have all require reshaping the built form of the city to one degree or or another, and in some cases, pretty dramatic degrees. 
Tell us more about the Streetlight Initiative. That was among the earliest things that we saw roll out. Uh, it's been widely received, really, I think, nationally. You can tell us more about the kind and of And internationally, we hope, yeah, yeah. In the case of the Streetlight competition, it was the combination of the real scope and breadth of the Streetlight program. We have 223,000 streetlights in the city of Los Angeles. They touch literally every corner, every pocket, every neighborhood of the city. We have a really remarkable design history and legacy in that program. So um, we had the most beautiful streetlights in the world from you know around 1905 to you know through the 1920s. A lot of neighborhoods rightly you know prize those designs, and we will continue to maintain them. And we do produce replicas of them of some of those designs across the city. But it was that combination of of scope and breadth and reach with the actually relatively discreet and small within the bureaucracy of Los Angeles, the manageable size of the Bureau of Street Lighting, which is a standalone agency. So that meant that implementing it, working with that agency from the mayor's office and, and Norma Isahakian, who runs the Bureau of Street Lighting, has been a terrific collaborator. So it was about finding the right partner within the city and city departments in a project that we thought would have some really dramatic scope and also touch on an important part of the design legacy. But we're it's, really excited about the reception we've gotten and the the coverage, the press coverage, and it seemed to tap into a desire to think about how we can design objects in the public right of way from a different point of view with a little more ambition. And also thinking about climate, we're asking all the teams to think about whether or not a streetlight could include a shade sale, for example, or some space for text or the written word. Our Department of Cultural Affairs is quite interested in using them potentially as a space for poems by the by the city's poet laureate. And I'm interested in the idea of some reference to neighborhood history or nearby architectural landmarks. I'm just sitting here in Venice thinking about the kinds of stories that that kind of space for text on a streetlight could tell. So all of that is a way of saying we're interested also in the daytime role that the streetlight plays. But I think as it connects to shade and, and climate equity and the climate crisis, just realizing that any object that we put in the right of way, we can no longer think of as just having one kind of programmatic responsibility, as it were, which is to say, illuminating the mm. the roadway uh, for cars at night, which is sort of what we'd begun to think about streetlights, mm. uh, how we'd begun to think about streetlights. Um, when when I saw the square. call, uh, was it a month, six weeks ago now, it struck me as a remarkably effective kind of uh, talisman or kind of avatar for the idea of the public realm being delivered by the civic institutions, you know, I mean, and I think in some ways, a return to the streetlight in, in a way is apt. I mean, for the reasons that you mentioned, on the one hand, it is clearly an object of design. It is as democratically or equitably distributed across cities as any infrastructure I could imagine, let's exactly, say. Exactly. So in that sense, the the idea that the streetlight is also a kind of a way to think about playing the inside game within the city bureaucracy, is that fair? Are there other agencies or other departments or other programs within the city that you think might also be fruitful in terms of collaborations? Very much so. So I, I work with a whole range of city departments. And, and you're right, just to touch on the point you made about the streetlight being in service of so-called motordom, which is the, I like it better than car culture. Given these questions about shifting uh, changes in mobility and technology, so much is, you know, up for grabs in the right-of-way. 
but it will all need to be lit. It will all need to be illuminated, as it were. That stage will need to be lit at night, of course. And so that's thing that will continue to be fixed no matter what kind of traffic or mobility or activity is happening, how much autonomy comes or doesn't come. It will all need to play out under under the streetlights. And so it, it's a kind of fixed element on that stage, as it were, that we know is not going anywhere, where, where so many other things are have the potential to change. And it's part of, I should say, the other reason it was attractive to me as a first design competition is that we are working toward a, a, really, a, a comprehensive design strategy for the right-of-way, but that's a huge project to take on. It will require really coordination among many of the departments that touch on this territory. Um, and so we've been trying to move sort of methodically step-by-step step into that territory. So Streetlight was the first thing we're working with the Bureau of Street Services on delivering more shade at these bus stops, as I mentioned looking at 750 of them where there's both high bus ridership and pockets of intense heat. And then we will be um, sending out a, a new RFP for street furniture sometime in 2020. That's really an opportunity to clarify for the first time in many years our goals in the right-of-ways as they relate to street furniture. And there's an opportunity to rethink what we ask of those partners and what we ask of that street furniture. And then the next step after that will be kind of a comprehensive unified design strategy for Again, what we call the public right-of-way, so streets and sidewalks, curbs, storm drains, all, all the rest from, you know, from building face to building face, and even including those building faces. So that's a, it's been really interesting for me to look at how other cities treat that building wall. We have traditionally, again, to get back to motordom, we have asked developers who are building new projects that border on or touch or form the edge of this public right-of-way to make all kinds of changes to that right-of-way, but largely in service of the efficient movement of private vehicles. So we've asked them to narrow sidewalks and, and widen, help us pay to widen streets and do a lot of things that now seem backward in terms of our climate and mobility goals. And so the streetlight was the first step in the direction of this larger design strategy for the right-of-way, which is a major project in my office this over the course of this year, 2020. I mean, there are so many cities that have engaged, I think, quite productively in the course of the last several years in what you might think of as kind of ad hoc, provisional taking aback. Think of the experiments in New York or San Francisco in recent years where essentially the city has been taking back space for the pedestrian, but through a whole variety of different mechanisms, sometimes paint, sometimes bollards, sometimes planters, sometimes temporary arrangements that then become permanent over time. It strikes me that the Streetlight Initiative and some of the other public realm initiatives that I'm aware of that you're engaged in have much more ambitious aspiration in terms of returning to a moment when we thought about the public realm as delivered by or responsible to the city. I think that's absolutely right. And it is very much, I think, central to my ambition in this job to think about how we can make permanent some of the most exciting, ephemeral, transitional, temporary, ad hoc, guerrilla, tactical, urbanist strategies that we have seen played out. And they've certainly played out here as well. So one of the most influential changes to come to Los Angeles since I've been here, and I certainly wrote about this um, many times as the architecture critic of the LA Times, was Ciclovia, which is an open streets festival modeled on Ciclovia from Bogota, Colombia. Um, the kind of open streets festival that many cities have now closing down several miles of street on a Sunday morning and, and afternoon uh, to car traffic, opening it up to pedestrians and cyclists. It started in 2010 here in LA. It really was a transformational moment in, in allowing us to rethink the potential of streets, mobility, our perspectives on architecture even, or just thinking about the kind of vast amount of publicly owned space that we have under our feet that could be a public square, a plaza, et cetera. And of course, that was 
part of a larger national international conversation. We were watching very closely what Jeanette Sadakan was doing in New York and what some of the other experiments you were referring to. But I think we're at a stage where we need to think about taking that energy and funneling it into some more permanent, fixed, in terms of scale, more ambitious projects because of the scale of the crisis that we face to begin with in terms of climate, but also in terms of the scale of Los Angeles and how much it was remade in service of the car, how much remains to be done. And those temporary or smaller scale projects were hugely important as a kind of transitional phase, but we do find ourselves at a moment where we need to think about, about fixing them. And, and we have an opportunity to connect to some other major infrastructural investments and changes that are happening across the region. And then also we're in the midst of a debate in California, as is happening nationally, about the future of housing, the future of zoning, the future of the single family neighborhood, et cetera. So all of the kind of major building blocks that had made up a certain idea of Los Angeles are in the process of being rethought or reimagined, often with with significant amount of funding approved by the voters behind those efforts. And so there is an opportunity in this generation, I think, over the next 10 to 20 25 years to think about how the city is remaking itself at an infrastructure or regional scale. And it is a moment we need to try to fix um, some of these really encouraging changes in more permanent form. I, I want to return to your interest in shade. Uh, so among the initiatives that have come out of your office in the first 18, 20 months of your tenure has been, a, I think, a very, very interesting focus on the idea of shade with respect to its equitable distribution, right? We come from this 20th century history that was by and large written, as you say, around um, uh, automobility, kind of motopia, and this idea of a suburban single-family home ownership, in which many of the planning and design frameworks, many of the intellectual histories, were built around an anxiety about not having enough light and air. Uh, but a part of what your interest in shade suggests to me is looking at the idea of, on the one hand, shade and relief from climate in this context as something that needs to be thought about equitably as opposed to simply being an amenity. What more might we imagine with respect to shade as you go forward in your role as chief design officer? So as is the case with um, our beautiful streetlight designs, we have real real pockets of, of beautiful shade, uh, but they're not distributed particularly equitably across the city and they tend to be in wealthier parts of the city. And a lot of that shade is produced by um, trees that are on private property. And as we're trying to draw people out of their cars back into the public realm in a variety of ways, we're thinking about pedestrian scale and pedestrian amenities across the city, and we're thinking about mobility in a different way. We find that people who venture into this territory of the public realm in many parts of the city, particularly, I would say, bus riders and other users of mass transit, find themselves in these kinds of sun-blasted parts of the city that have been again, widened well past pedestrian scale to to make room for the efficient movement of cars. And they're left um, in this territory that many parts of the year, not just in the summer, it's important to say it can be 102 degrees here in October. Uh, so across much of the year can find a really inhospitable climate. Now, the irony, as you point out, is that Los Angeles has been a city that for a long time has seen sunshine as one of its prime commodities. The city sold itself on that basis as it was expanding across the 20th century. But the truth is that for much of the geography of the city, much of the year, it can be the problem is too much sun, not enough shade. So it's not just equitable distribution. It's also a question of thinking about equity in terms of mobility and people who can afford a private car or a regular Uber habit and those who cannot. 
and what the design of the public realm says. And some of this began with an event I did at Occidental College in the spring about shade is equity and shade is infrastructure. And we called it Turn Off the Sunshine. And we got that title from a Timothy Turner. It was a, he was a noir writer in the 40s. It was a collection of short stories, not particularly well written. It's got a great uh, frontispiece of a man standing in the in the shade of a cast, a really thin strip of shade cast by a lamppost or a streetlight. But you know, this kind of sunshine noir dynamic or binary, of course, has been so much at the heart of the literature, the canon of literature about Los Angeles and, and its built environment not least. And so it's interesting to think about that dynamic. But there, you know, there are a lot of ways to tackle that. We are beginning with the collaboration with the Bureau of Street Services, as I mentioned, thinking about how we can add some shade very quickly at a lot of bus stops across the city. And then it will it will also be part of the streetlight uh, competition as it as it goes forward and, and also the the conversation about the future of the street furniture contract as well. I'm struck by your reference to these these imaginaries, the literary and the filmic imaginaries of Los Angeles, but also how in this economy of solar performance, you have access to something that on the one hand hasn't really been commodified again. Like it, it doesn't really seem yet to be sold and bought in the way that so many other elements of the built environment have been. Mm. And again, by, by sliding into that in, in, in a kind of elliptical way, I think that it seems like it might have the opportunity to produce a, a new set of conversations about the, about the public realm. My perception from the outside, I wonder if you'd agree with this. I think Southern California has had a history maybe uneven, but certainly history of some notable public buildings. So at the scale of the city, the county, the state, and presumably also the federal government has built some high quality buildings in the past and more recently. Is, is that something we should discuss? Yes. I mean, my sense is that we that most of that ambition was in this kind of first Los Angeles period of the, mm. let's see, um, early decades of the 20th century. And then like a lot of cities, we kind of lost that thread. So it's easy to think of examples from the, from the teens and 20s, for example, the Central Library by Bertram Goodhue. Um, City Hall, the building where I where I work, which is a fantastic um, landmark of kind of ambitious 20 civic architecture. And there are some examples from the post-war period. I can see from my office window at City Hall, I look up toward Bunker Hill. So I have a great architectural view as views go. I have a very small office, but I have this fantastic view looking up toward Bunker Hill. And I can see not just Disney Hall and the Broad, mm -hmm. um, the new federal courthouse, but, but also the Department of Water and Power, which is an A.C. Martin building. And one of the great post-war buildings in Los Angeles, public or private. There is a sense, I think largely uh, true, that design ambition or architectural ambition largely migrated to the private realm in the post-war decades. And so most of our important landmarks in the second half of the 20th century were private houses and that we didn't produce as many ambitious civic buildings. And that we're, we're trying to get back to that. I've been um, spending a fair amount of time working on our plans for a new city office building just east of City Hall on the site of the old Parker Center building. So there was quite an interesting preservation debate just as I was leaving the Times before I got to the city about the future of that building, the original LAPD headquarters, which is familiar to viewers of Dragnet, Dragnet. right? Everybody uh, who's watched television. Uh, probably knows that building, uh, Welton Beckett, another major project for this year, thinking about the ways we put our on-call lists and, and how we how we put lists of architects together and how we might rethink some of those procedures. Yeah, so I think I think there is a there's an opportunity for us. And again, I my my preference, although the, the building I've just described is quite large. 
I think there's an opportunity to think about a smaller scale. And I think as I look at other cities, there's something to be said for focusing uh, more ambitious procurement initiatives around buildings at the scale of the library branch or the rec center or the small park, for it's example. It's interesting you're touching on a, a kind of kind of fabric, not to say background building, but a building that's really kind of civic because so much of the public realm is being built out as a result of really housing in many American cities. And those projects tend toward either the very, very large or the one-off, the single family house. And there's something structural in my view, if, if you look at cities like Miami, certainly about the way that housing is delivered in those environments that tends just the financialization of them, right. the incentives, the logic of land ownership, land tenure, mortgage structures, they all conspire toward the very tall discrete tower or the, the one-off ranch. And, and I don't wanna make a caricature of that, but I do, I think you're, you're pointing to an important role that the city can play in terms of advocating for a certain scale of Building. So two thoughts on that. One is on the on the buildings that the city produces itself. So again, library branches or, or schools. Again, LAUSD is not run directly by the city. That's connected to the conversation we were having earlier about the, the kind of jurisdictional complexity. But that scale has a lot of potential from a rethinking procurement point of view. And I agree with you that the background building is uh, or the sort of mid-scale building deserves a new level of attention, both in terms of privately financed and in terms of civic building. So we had a whole generation of really successful architects in the post-war decades. So the Pereiras and the Welton Beckett's and the AC Martins of the of, of the world did re produce remarkably good buildings at that scale. Before that, Claude Bielman and Paul Williams, uh, a whole list of others across the 20th century. And I think that list is shorter now. I mean, I think there are architects who have done a lot of work at that scale. Michael Maltzen, Barbara Bester, um, a handful of others come to mind, Fred Fisher. But that scale is really, it's a hard nut to crack. So I've been thinking about procurement and sort of thinking of the city as a patron of a certain kind of architecture and, and the headway we can make there. The more interesting and trickier question is mid-scale apartment blocks on major boulevards across the city. Los Angeles is not unique, but I think we've produced a maybe a higher proportion of those than any other American city over the last two decades. And that is to say so-called five over one or a uh, five to six story wood frame building over a concrete parking podium. And the reason for that, there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. If you go higher than 75 feet in most parts of the city, you have to go to type one construction, you have to go to steel or concrete. And that in turn has to do largely with fire codes. And so what that means is developers, and largely the, often they're done without architects or architects are, let's say, tangentially involved. They, they design one or two for these companies who then build a variation of that across American cities. Mm -hmm. And the trick for them is then to pack as many units as they can into a building that doesn't exceed um, that height that would trigger mm. the change in, in structure. You, know, you, you mentioned I mean, in, in this uh, second phase of LA, the post-war LA, kind of Motopia LA, LA did produce a number of quite unique kind of variations on architectural types, right? The googie, the dingbat, these these things that came out of that culture. And it strikes me that Southern California more broadly has been a, a kind of laboratory for innovation in that in that regard. I mean, not always through high architecture, but it's also been the case that we look back at some of this work and we now evaluate more more uh, more highly than we might have. More generously, yes. That's right. I yes. think, are, are there preservation or conservation issues in the city that you think we should be mindful of today? Are, are there buildings at great threat or are there a typology of building that are under threat? Yes. So there are housing advocates who would say, A, those buildings will look better with time. And as the dingbats have, 
somewhat dubious about that. Others, the more interesting argument is that in the middle of a housing crisis, those are the cheapest, easiest, fastest buildings to build. So there's certainly parts of the city, we still allow them in some parts of downtown where I think we should be thinking about height minimums and just don't change the code, but just say you can't can't build a 60-foot building in some parts of downtown, right? That would be a relatively easy fix that we've been thinking about. But where that argument has been persuasive to me is people say in the valley, these boulevards in the valley where we desperately need new housing across, you know, affordable and market rate, we shouldn't look askance at, at buildings that are really cheap and easy and quick to put up. And that's the tradition of how we build housing quickly. And so that I'm at least partially um, convinced by that argument. So to your question about preservation. Um, so then there's a question of whether we could have any with the new production of these buildings, whether... There's some kind of design standards. There's a new state law, SB 330, that actually essentially outlaws what they call subjective design review in cities in California. So if we were to come up with some kind of design review for those buildings, we'd have to kind of objectify it. And there, there are ways to make it objective. There, are, I've been studying very closely um, procurement models in other cities that have in one that we've kind of stolen from Toronto called a compliance matrix, where you, you, you sort of state very straightforward objectives to a building, and then you can measure its compliance, and then you can get away from the idea that it's subjective. One this seems so much more enlightened another. an approach compared to the uh, Boston tends to like a lot of brick and corner, right, you know, exactly. like, as so, opposed to a kind of uh, aesthetic or subjective or a kind of material judgment. I mean, to put it mildly, we don't have a tradition of design review. We have a tradition of really laissez-faire attitude toward the production of architecture. And there are many architects who would argue quite passionately that only that laissez-faire attitude which allows a lot of ugliness, what allows a lot of ambition and, and really unusual unorthodox architecture. So we I would if we had some kind of you know approach to thinking about improving the design across the board of those privately produced apartment blocks, it would have to be very much with that history in mind and not importing a model from from San Francisco, the Bay Area where I'm from, or Boston. Uh, but something that makes sense for Los Angeles. I'm I'm really interested in this set of questions. So I've I've put together this civic memory working group, um, which includes a number of historians, architects, designers, artists, and some other uh, scholars and writers, to really help me think through and help us think through the question of how, in a city so often caricatured as being obsessed with the future, neglecting its past, or really in, in the most extreme version, not having a past or not having history. It's certainly fair to say that we have been neglectful in certain ways of our, of our own history. Um, we have been enamored of this idea that we're the city of the future and, and we've kept our gaze fixed in that way. And we have whitewashed the more difficult, like so many cities, more fraught periods of our history, particularly racial history, particularly the indigenous than, than Spanish, than Mexican histories of Los Angeles as the a kind of Anglo elite was establishing itself in the, across the 20th century, right? So, so I've convened this group. It's, it's a really remarkable group. It's about 30 or 35. Um, we had our first meeting, which the mayor helped us kick off uh, late last year. Our next meeting is, second meeting is in February. We'll have four meetings in total. And then that group will, will recommend through some subcommittee work as well what I hope will be some very specific policy recommendations that we can put into a report that we finish by the end of 2020. And there will be some work, significant work about preservation. So I'm interested in that in a couple of, in a couple of avenues. One is the architecture of the recent past. And I've, I've done some public events and some writing about the LA architecture of the 80s and 90s. 
and then a question about whether there are ways we could beef up the protection of um, individual residential landmarks. Because if you made a list of the 100 most important works of architecture in Los Angeles, much higher proportion would be single-family houses in LA than in any other American city. And because the, those are under private ownership, they're much more, more vulnerable to demolition than other kinds of landmarks. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you just connected for me in a way that I hadn't understood before, a relationship between a kind of laissez-faire kind of post-war forms of emancipation, let's say, and a cultural production that then ends up in private ownership and is therefore vulnerable, but tied to the identity of the city. I, I suppose the other thing that comes to mind in what you're saying is how much of the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, you know, I mean, the, the filmic imaginary of this place is not residing just in our architectural objects, right? It's, it's in that view down the river. It's in that scene in Chinatown. It's, it's in those set pieces. And in that sense, I suppose it could be interesting to think about civic memory as a kind of broader media beyond just architectural preservation and conservation. Very much so. So, you know, for the 80s and 90s, we're thinking about how we can put a strategy in place to get a little bit ahead of the curve, you know, because buildings tend to fall out of fashion or out of favor or into the shadow of potential vulnerability or demolition, you know, starting when they're about 20 or 25 and then they come out of it maybe when they're 30 or 35, 40, maybe 50. And most buildings that we, whose demolition we really regret are, they tend to be, and this is buildings of almost any era in almost any American city. We tend to demolish them when they're between 40 and 50. And so I think getting, beginning to make the case for buildings, even as, as recent as the late nineties, is important in beginning to build a constituency for protecting that work. But also because we have such a rich heritage, the early, you know, this side of town, all the, the all the important early work by Morphosis, by Frank Gehry, by so many other important firms, not only is from that period, but also faces a particularly thorny set of preservation challenges, in my view, because a lot of it was so interested in challenging bourgeois taste and conventional sure. notions of beauty, right? It was maybe tough to love in a traditional way when it was new, mm. uh, to say nothing of when it's fallen. How does one conserve chain link fence? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're interesting questions. Yeah, there. so, um, but but I'm really taken by your question about these set pieces and the, and the, and the kind of cinematic... Uh, vision or views of Los Angeles. And I and that has really come up in the conversations we've had about the river. So the river, as most people know, is a seasonal river. It would, and, and really downtown LA, and, and before that, the, the Pueblo was centered where it is because of the river. And then it began to flood in, in some really deadly ways as the city built up next to it by the 20s and 30s. And so we made the decision beginning in the 30s and 40s to channelize the entire thing to wrap all 51 miles in concrete. Again, this is a kind of engineering logic that was happening all over the country and all over the world, but it had a particularly profound effect on taking what had been one of the most important corridors of public space and public amenity in the city, and you know we we fenced it off, and so it was it was largely illegal even to have access to the river. But nonetheless, as we think about the layers of history that are important as we remake some pockets of it, or it was I mentioned before, we think about a design strategy for open space along the river, you know, the I find those long views of the concretized river quite singular, actually. And and, and they're a kind of landscape that doesn't that immediately evokes Los Angeles, first of all, thanks to how many movies have been filmed there. But um, but also just because of the particular mix of kind of infrastructural and natural, let's say, volunteer nature aesthetic, um, power lines, often industrial buildings or 
jails, railroad tracks, um, and this concrete river with, in most of the year, just a trickle of water. Um, that, and then and then crossed as it goes through downtown by these beautiful um, Deco 20s bridges that we built up. That combination is is quite singular to LA, it seems to me, and, and is worthy of um, being part of the conversation about preservation as well. No doubt. It strikes me that around conservation and preservation is a whole set of new practices emerging. I, I'm not even sure I have the language to describe them at this point, but how do you begin to deal with something like the filmic landscape of the LA River from a conservation preservation point? I mean, what is to be kept? Who's to decide? It's such a fascinating question. And I will say what I just said about that concretized landscape as being, I find it, I find it actually beautiful, is not an argument that would find a lot of favor among the long-term advocates for rethinking the river because of course when they were encountering it you know lewis mcadams you know famously cut a hole in the chain link and i think fred fisher was actually with him went down with a few people down to the river and said you know ask the river what he what the river wanted to be something like that and he very brilliantly did say at that point that rethinking the la river was going to be a 40-year art project so both in terms of the trajectory the timeline, the patience that would be required, and thinking of it as an art project, those two things together, it was it was a real kind of foresight. Nonetheless, I think they have been fighting those advocates for, for so many years. Even, I mean, their first and primary battle was convincing the Army Corps of Engineers that we should call it a river and not a flood control channel. And they've been fighting a slightly different battle. So we're in an interesting moment, actually, because there are plenty, plenty of people who have made an argument similar to the one we're making, but the kind of visions for what, what the river could be in the various master plans have tended toward the, let's say, a little, a little bit in the Arcadian direction or the sense of returning and kind of, it's kind of paradise lost idea about re-greening this space. And again, I, I see how important that was for so many years to kind of change the, the public's mindset or even introduce the public to the idea that there was a river here in any kind of traditional sense, which was, was a really powerful set of arguments to make. At the same time, you know, because of climate change and, you know, that we, we still need the flood control mechanisms of the river, we may need them even more in certain places, um, given the intensity of storm runoff, maybe even greater. And so it's a, it's a fascinating time to think about that. And I think, well, you know, the great thing about the river is that it is, it's long enough to accommodate a huge number of visions and that we will be able to explore Mm. all ends of all parts of the spectrum among, among the ironies of this history i mean i think that you know i mean you and i are not not exactly the same age but we're of a generation where we're educated about the failures of modernism and these kind of hubristic kind of giant kind of master plans and these mm. kind of hydrological engineering structures and yet I don't know of anybody who's really serious about these efforts, whether it's with respect to legacy infrastructure or whether it's climate change adaptation, that isn't arguing for both and. Like we, we need, right. you know, we, it's not simply a matter of this replaces that. We can't simply replace these engineered structures with uh, returning things to nature, de-damming alone. At the same moment, of course, we don't imagine that simply, you know, more levees will save us either. And at the same time, it's the, exactly. the, the structural challenges of working in these institutions and in these frameworks that I find interesting. I want to return to your civic memory working group for one moment. Yeah. When I was reading about it, and from what I understand about it, it seems uh, among the more uh, kind of enlightened ways to approach this kind of thing. The two images that immediately occurred to me, first, of course, there's Tarantino's most recent film, right, which is really a, 
this kind of wonderful couple of hour meditation about the streets of Los Angeles, right? It's, and then the other is um, I'm doing some work the, up at the Getty and their acquisition of Ed Ruscha's archive of the streets of LA. Those are just two examples that I know about. I can only imagine what you have access to with your with your education and your experience here in Southern California. So I, I want to hear more from you about how we might be able to leverage those kinds of both the filmic, but also the kind of archival imaginary of Los Angeles. That's it's very much a question at the heart of this um, civic memory group. And that's sort of a working title that stuck. I don't know if we'll stick with it, but it, I, I was very interested in just moving past and beyond it's kind of hackneyed ideas about preservation or, or history and really thinking about a set of challenges that are pressing in Los Angeles and for Los Angeles and it, the big shift that's happened in the last 25 years around the time that I've been in Los Angeles is giving up on this idea of endless expansion mm-hmm. and, um, and that growth is one of our chief industries, of our chief industry. So Mike Davis in City of Courts describes LA as the the city that dreamt of being infinite, that ate the desert. I always loved that phrase. And we have decided in the last, since City of Courts appeared in 1990, at some point between then and now, we've decided that we're no longer that city. We're no longer the city of that can dream of uh, realistically of infinite expansion. So then there's a whole set of questions that follow from that. What does that mean? How do we turn back from the edge and look back toward the middle? How do we think about infill development or filling in all the space, the territory that we sort of rush past in our rush to the edge as we developed the huge expanse of the city and region relatively lightly in terms of density? And so what does it mean to kind of turn back from that edge? And what does it mean to give up on that idea, which was so central to LA? I mean, this is at the heart of our discussions now about the housing affordability and homelessness crisis, both the state of California and LA County seeing declines in population, growth, expansion, really headlong growth for many periods of LA's history was the one constant. So all this other flux is happening, all these other changes, but the one constant is we're a city and region that grows, that really identifies itself um, in connection to that growth and thinks again of growth as an industry. So primarily because housing has gotten so expensive, we're seeing population declines for the first time and people are leaving to find uh, cheaper housing either elsewhere in California or elsewhere in the United States. And that only exacerbates the problem because the people who tend to leave are lower income and the people who come in are attracted to, uh, to higher end, higher income jobs. And that just furthers the, exacerbates the housing affordability crisis. So we, it's, it, it is our fundamental challenge at the moment. And it's not just about housing and the production of housing. It's also about how we think of LA and, and sort of what defines the place, the city and the region. So you've referred to, Christopher, in your work, the challenge of um, advocating for design in a city which is predominantly built out by private and as of right development, overwhelmingly built through single family homes. This reminds me of you know Rainer Bannum's formulation of the non-plan. And I think you've been quite articulate in your public role in advocating for a sense of history-mindedness in which people did seek to live here. They still seek to live here, not only for the, the cultural charms and the quality of the environment and, and the atmosphere, but also for a sense of uh, political emancipation. Uh, I think Bannum is quite clear in his writing on the subject that, in fact, it's not just political emancipation. It's, in fact, a, a distribution across different scales of political decision-making that he describes in his writing uh, in, the, in the 1960s and 70s, in which he found in Southern California certain decisions taken at the scale of the state or federal infrastructure, other decisions taken at the scale of the school board or the local tenants district. 
And so in that, what are the challenges for your role as chief design officer? Are, are, are there limits to your ability to advocate for enhancing the quality of the public realm in a city which is predominantly uh, produced through private capital? So the Bantam example is so is so interesting in this context because he, you know, to the degree that he thought about LA as the do it do it yourself city, the city he called it the city of endless possible selves. It was a place for reinvention, and to the extent that what what made that so powerful in his hands as a critic and historian was that those impulses or those opportunities were playing out not just at the level of individual buildings, architecture of houses, of course, which he wrote so smartly about, but also at the level of infrastructure. So, of course, the freeway, the expanding freeway network becomes the the kind of chief metaphor for him of that kind of freedom of motion. So he talked about moving in a kind of Brownian motion around the whole city and a, and that leading to a kind of egalitarianism and a lack of hierarchy. So the important thing was not going in and out of a center, as he put it, but moving from one any point of the city to any other point of the city with equal ease and freedom and the, this really close relationship between the individuality and freedom to, to do creative work here and the way that that was enabled and then fixed in, in sort of monumental form by the infrastructure of, of the city. But you have to realize that that was a very brief moment. And so a lot of my work has been arguing that that um, was a fixed moment in time that has come and gone. And it's important to understand the appeal and why LA was such a great vehicle for Bannum, he was very much looking for that kind of vehicle to also shake up the world of architectural history and criticism, right? And LA was a kind of at a perfect moment to be used in that way. But he came at, there was a very brief golden age of the freeway. So putting aside the question of the ways in which freeways subdivided communities and ran through communities of color, which is important part of how that history has been recovered and reexamined in recent years, there was a brief point where you really could get from any point in LA to any other point in, in 20 minutes. You know, that's the 20 minutes of cliche. So people used to say, so there was, we had built enough freeway and cars had gotten safe enough so that that became, you know, he was here in this brief moment where it all worked, at least for white men. Right. And as an outsider, he could see it, he could report on it, he could describe it in a way. But and there was also that there was also architectural space and opportunity to go with it. But the but the fact is that that LA has been gone for many decades, and there's not room for that kind of experimentation. There's not room. I mean, he talks about the hillside, the modern hillside uh, house as being a kind of democratizing vehicle in Los Angeles um, and a way for people in the middle class to kind of um, make a life for themselves. And of course, anybody, you know, under 50 just laughs when they when they hear that idea. So we've run out of room. We've run out of space. This is one of the reasons I'm interested in what role the city can play as a patron of new architecture, because um, for most of the second half of the 20th century, young architects, particularly on this side of town, in Venice and Santa Monica and elsewhere could find young clients, often middle-class clients who had a little piece of land where they wanted to do a house or they wanted to extend their house or, and those kinds have largely dried up. It's really, there's no open land left. Uh, it's so expensive here to buy or to build that young architects have a really tough set of challenges in terms of building. And they also face a kind of city and county bureaucracy that, that makes it really difficult for them as well. But to, to your larger question, it yeah, it's very much about, about picking one's spots. I, I have a great deal of support from the mayor. I work for a mayor who's very smart and sophisticated about this, but it's in a larger context where I would say both to the level, and we can talk a little bit about land use and the way in which that authority has traditionally gone through city council offices. 
So within the city, there's that complexity and then up to the regional complexity of the relationship. And the river is a great example. So as we plan this piece of land along the river that the city bought two years ago at Taylor Yard, um, we're working with the county, which is getting ready to release its own new master plan, updated master plan for the river. Uh, the state, particularly in terms of the state parks department, which owns two adjacent parcels. Um, and then, of course, the federal government, because the Army Corps of Engineers ultimately controls the channel itself of the river. So there are levels of complexity within city government and in this sort of larger regional scale. And it's playing out right now in terms of our debates about um, housing production. And we have targets that are set by the state, by a coalition of regional governments called SCAG, um, by the city, by individual, you know, council offices. And so I, you know, I wrote enough about City Hall to know what those challenges would be. I was not naive about them, of course, but it always looks different when you get inside. And so it's very much about, about finding where we can have the most impact, um, where that impact is direct in terms of infrastructure design, like streetlights and where it's more rhetorical or it is delivered by some other means. I certainly have an understanding of how the media works and how, how a certain way of thinking about narrative in the city, how you tell the story of a city and, and, and LA has not traditionally had as many platforms to talk about itself or its future than other cities. And again, many people would say quite rightly, that was the great appeal of LA. It didn't take itself seriously in that way. But at a moment of real change and flux that has to do with, with public money and and a kind of charge that voters have given us to remake the city, right? We need those kinds of conversations more than any other American city right now. It's interesting, the, for, the formulation that it was a city that didn't at least publicly seem to take itself so seriously. At the same time, my, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a city that seems well uh, curated. It's a city that has recorded its history. No, I mean, there's mm -hmm. a sense of at least from the outside, the institutions are here. It's a place that's documented itself. That's, again, yeah. from the outside, my perception. I think, and that's probably recent. I mean, the Getty, again, I think I think the Getty deserves a lot of credit. For, and I love to think about this as a thought experiment. If the Getty were building the Getty Center now, what would the reception be to the idea of building one consolidated campus on a hilltop next to the 405, as opposed to a distributed you know, model? Instead of $1 billion museum, what if they had hired 10 architects to do $10, $100 million museums across the city or $110 million museums? Or, you know, it's fascinating to think about that. That was not what that institution was going to do. But to its great credit, they have thought about a, a distribution that's more about software than hardware that's about uh, the PST program, about supporting scholarship, about fixing that history in catalogs and in in scholarly work and at exhibitions and partnering with institutions all over the region. So... Um, it's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, there's no museum of the city of Los Angeles, for example. No. There's no, you know, yeah. there is no spur like like uh, San Francisco has. There's no Graham Foundation. There's no storefront. I mean, we have some really interesting and effective smaller organizations like Max Center at the Schindler House and um, Center for Land Use Interpretation oh, would be on my short list. One of my f absolute absolute favorites, and was one of my favorite places to write about exhibitions. I completely agree, and I'm glad you mentioned them. And it is a, it is still a really fertile ecosystem for that kind of institution. <laughs> yeah, I think we've we've certainly gotten better. And yeah, there are cities that probably pontificate too much about their own futures and their own sort of identity. But we have needed more of those conversations and we're starting to see, and we're starting mm -hmm. to see more of them. There's certainly an audience for them. So you tell me that you knew what you were in for. My question is why after 14 years as an architecture critic for the LA Times, why would you leave that job? It was very, very hard. I was very, 
very happy. I have two great kids. My wife has a really interesting career. She runs a performing arts center. I felt very supported at the LA Times. I, I felt that they gave me a lot of freedom. There was a lot. It was a real roller coaster, different ownership and you know various crises. And the paper really shrank in the time that I was there. But personally, I, I felt very lucky and privileged to have that position. And I felt that I was I had the the freedom to to shape the job in a particular way. And so I was in no in no hurry to leave it. And I also think LA is the best city to write about at the moment. It's the best subject because of all the things we've been talking about, how much seems up for grabs here. Again, it's easy to overplay this idea of, of constant flux, but but there is a real sense that these basic building blocks or assumptions or questions are being re-examined and a huge amount is up for grabs. The shift from, uh, I mean, writing, even though you're, you know, you socialize in the context of an editorial group and in the context of a newspaper, you know, you're also, you know, an educator, you're also engaged as a public figure. So you're well socialized. It's, it's not like you're, you know, just in your studio writing when you're, when you, when you're working as a journalist, but the shift from being in your head and developing the premise or the, the way in the hook, working out the 1500 words, the wordsmithing of that as a kind of solitary exercise, very different than working in a city hall, very different than working in a bureaucracy. Uh, are there challenges? Are there aspects of this new way of working that you found uh, liberating? Um, oh, it's a huge challenge. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of mentally exhausting in a way that tells me that I'm challenging myself, which is good, but it's so different. It requires a completely different set of skills. And again, that was one of the reasons I wanted to do it, but it is intensely collaborative. It can be very transactional. It's about relationships. Um, I realized pretty quickly on that the written word as a tool of influence, I, I mentioned that it can, I've, I've discovered it can help me clarify my thinking as a tool of influence. It has almost no currency. Well, it's your practice. When I started, it's how you process. Right? So that's, you, a, yeah. that's a challenge. I've found the mayor's office and my colleagues to be really impressive. Very similar, actually, as different as the work is, very similar personality types to a newsroom. So a lot of young, very ambitious people who have a little chip on their shoulder because maybe they feel they're underpaid or they're doing you know work that has a certain civic importance, right? Journalists are mm -hmm. very similar that yeah. way. So I kind of recognize the type even though the work itself is very different. I think the one challenge I feel, and I've gotten better about this, is that when I, when I started, um, of course, I have to pick my battles. I have to, you know, it's a gigantic city. You know, I have to figure out where I can find some room to maneuver and operate and where, where I can have the most impact. But I, you know, as a critic, you're attracted to the stories that are challenging, that are complicated, um, those are the ones that are really most uh, fun to write about and most fun to think about. And particularly in the work that I was trying to do as a critic, I was trying to write about kind of layers of urban complexity and what it meant to produce, you know, um, urban public space of a certain quality and the kind of political as well as architectural or formal complexity that comes along with that. And so I'm attracted to those stories. And I, and I found in my, in my new job, I'm attracted to those sites which almost by definition are the toughest to uh, the toughest to solve, and I, I don't want to check that too much because I think it's important to to frame those complicated questions so they don't kind of get solved in the more traditional ways of you know, sort of path of least resistance. In that description of journalist, come political figure, you know, political leader, 
as two sides of the same coin, I think there's a kind of legibility to that account that resonates mm -hmm. with me. And it also, I mean, in, in my experience with your work, uh, you, you, in the rubric of just talking about architecture, you found a way into talking about almost anything in the city. And that's all to your credit as a journalist, but also that expansive idea of the public realm. It strikes me that in this new role, you would be attracted to the interstices, the kind of cultural, economic, civic, the historic, and in some ways have much more latitude. I mean, there, it strikes me, you know, not having done it, uh, that the work of the extra critic is, especially in a print uh, newspaper, it's so structured by a word count. It's so structured by the rhythm of the week. You know, it's mm -hmm. so, and in some ways, I suppose that could be liberating. But at the same moment, it strikes me that now, because the job is new, you're the inaugural holder of this role you might be able to construct it in such a way as to take up those topics you find most compelling and without necessarily having a daily remit. Yes. And the, the, so if that's a way of asking, is it, is it amorphous and is it, you know, it, it is. And it's, it's, I've been trying to strike a balance between some very specific work where that kind of latitude or that broader context is, is not only not useful, it can be harmful to the progress of a project and that it, it's not the place and time to bring in some broader history uh, or layers of complexity that I find attractive as a critic. And that can really be detrimental to the work. And there are other places where it is helpful, actually, in, in, in trying to broaden the way that we frame certain sets of questions. So it's really about recognizing which is which and, and recognizing where the particular skills that I bring to bear are different, are useful, and the ways where I just have to bear down and sort of learn the process of how it's done and and work within the confines of, of that system. You know, it's not a city departments are uncomfortable for good reason, starting with safety and liability with all a lot of things that are most compelling to a writer or critic. So kind of uncertainty contingency, hmm. opening oneself up to a lot of different possibilities or keeping avenues open or admitting uh, complexity, admitting a lack of knowledge, admitting uh, uncertainty about where a project is going. You know, that's not the kind of approach that's going to that's that's going to work within the Bureau of Engineering, right, which is responsible for shaping so much of our city. Nonetheless, I think the mayor created this position because he was interested in in having a, a, a broader set of conversations at this moment of real change. So, I, I mean, a, a, it was funny. There was a little bit of conversation after I got the job. And in general, there's been very generous and nice, supportive, you know, coverage and reaction. But there was a little interesting back and forth about whether the mayor should have appointed a practicing architect. Or, and it's interesting because I, there, I could see that approach working. But I think as a critic... There's a kind of inherent weighing of options and uh, kind of a version of consensus building within a single piece or, or, or way of thinking about a project that really affects the way I look at a project as opposed to, I could see certain, I imagine certain architects in this role, I could see them thinking, well, I would design it that way or that this approach is, you know, I want to, there's a kind of authorship. I don't have the, I have lots of anxieties. I have lots of challenges. I don't have a, a kind of anxiety about authorship or or designing the thing myself, because that's not what I was hired to do. I was hired to broker a set of conversations or to bring a different set of designers to the table or architects to the mm -hmm. table. And so my mind doesn't go to how I would actually design the project myself, which would, I think, be tough for an architect not to think about. 
So your role, you've mentioned, is a product of Mary Garcetti's second term, some number of years going forward. You've been quite articulate in our conversation and in your public uh, pronouncements about your aspirations for this role and your work and the city's future. Do you have thoughts beyond that? Uh, you, you'll publish the, the book, a collection of essays. Do you have a working title for that? I don't have a working title. I don't, you know, the mayor has talked about wanting this to be a position that um, can sort of embed itself and, and, um, and prove its worth uh, to the next mayor. But of course, that will be up to the next mayor. There are ways in which one could imagine a version of this being embedded, whether it's me or someone else, a position like this being embedded in one of the departments. I mentioned the urban design studio and the planning department. I do a lot of work with them. So it's, uh, I've had a very productive um, relationship um, with that studio. Our job in the mayor's office is to think about the whole picture and the relationship among and between the departments. Mm. The view from inside a department is necessarily is different and more focused, but a position that would be located in a department would have the benefit of, of maybe not being attached to a particular administration. Apparently. Presumably one could imagine a national program of this kind. It's true. And and I, we've certainly looked, particularly from the procurement point of view, where I've had a lot of studying to do and a lot of learning to do. Um, you know, we looked at the GSA, we looked at the Design Excellence Program, um, we looked at some of the initiatives that Mayor Bloomberg put in place. At the center of our housing crisis here is that we have not thought about housing policy in connection with education and particularly with mobility. And in fact, we have pursued a lot of, there have been a lot of unintended consequences of reforms like Proposition 13, which limited property taxes and um, even CEQA or State Environmental Quality Act that have um, further separated the production of housing from these other larger regional questions. I think we're realizing now that we have produced all kinds of disincentives for individual cities in California to produce housing because there's no tax-based rationale. Um, and we've um, instead these cities have um, chased jobs, and there there has been a wider and wider gap or sense of disconnection between where people live and where people work, and then how they get back and forth from one to the other. And so, you know, the city of Beverly Hills or Santa Monica or Culver City, these smaller cities within LA County, have essentially the same population that they had in 1970 because they've had again no incentive to increase the residential population, but they've had huge job growth. So all those people who work in Culver City and Amazon Studios or, or, or work in Santa Monica in some creative industry, um, the chances are quite high that they live somewhere to the east. And as a region, we have to figure out how to get them there. And that, that's now at the center of the very contentious but overdue political debates that we're having statewide about zoning and housing, where we put housing, the relationship between or among job centers, mobility corridors, transit corridors, and and housing production densification. That's that is really the aside from this national uh, election that you that you mentioned that that is the the number one political debate in California for 2020 is how all of that will be um, will be hashed out. Christopher Hawthorne, thanks very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was a great conversation. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and 
Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.